Welcome. I'm your host, Dylan Benyon, and you're listening to the Cognition & Co. podcast, Psychology in South Africa. On today's episode, we'll be talking to registered clinical psychologist and regular speaker at the Cognition & Co. conferences, Christopher Kemp. I've known Chris for most of my life, and he's been instrumental in my applications for masters. It's for this reason that we asked him to come on the podcast to discuss applications and referee reports. Hey, Chris, uh, welcome to welcome to the podcast. Thanks, dude. Congrats on launching a podcast. Thanks, thanks. Well, we have you on the show today to to chat a little bit more about applications for masters um, and get a little bit of your insight into it and uh, and and hear your experience a bit too. Yeah, awesome. What I wanted to ask you first was a little bit about your history in terms of like what got you into psych, um, those sort of things. So I, I kind of, my road through psych was kind of linear in the sense that early on, I kind of decided that I wanted to do it. So I think it was in like grade eight or something like that, where I thought, you know, I think I'd really be interested in psychology. I had this thing for forensic psychology, you know, that like, FBI profiler kind of stuff. Maybe I watched too many shows with that in, but I like that idea. Um, yeah, but then eventually just became sort of regular, regular psychology. Um, yeah, and I never really swayed from that. So I went to Rhodes after I finished my trick, um, did my undergrad in psych there. Um, I was kind of all in. I did a BA in psychology and linguistics, so I had zero plan B. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what linguists do. Actually, they probably do some cool stuff. But yeah, I just did linguistics because I kind of thought that was interesting. Um, I was really all in on the psych plan. Um, ended up doing my honors through UNISA. And then um, after honors, I went to South Korea, taught English for a couple of years there, um, aiming for the whole life experience thing. Um, I spoke to someone who said, look, we do technically take people right after honors, but we don't really like to. And it's good to have some life experience or whatever. And the Korea people had come to Rhodes and done like a whole talk on how great it is to teach English in Korea or whatever, <laughs> gave us the hard sells. So ended up doing that um, for two years, ended up staying for a second year. So obviously it wasn't too bad. Um, invaluable in terms of life experience, definitely, because it was just such a different place and a different culture and a very difficult place to kind of live in and get used to and stuff like that. You know, you've also done the teaching overseas thing and Asia is like another world in terms of how they think about things and do things. So yeah, it's great in sort of getting used to working in difficult environments or, or facing challenges or seeing other perspectives or having to do things differently or outside your comfort zone. So that was cool. Uh, then when I came back, I applied to a whole bunch of universities um, and ended up getting into UNISA. Um, for those people that don't know, Chris and I like have been friends for quite quite some time, and we went to school together. And Chris, I'm a little bit sad that you didn't talk more about psychology to me uh, when we were in school because I only really figured out that I wanted to do this when I would come visit you guys at Rhodes um, and, right. and and saw Chris studying psychology and was like, "What what is this? This sounds incredible! Like I think I should look into this further." And that's kind of why I started taking electives at some point while I was at NMU, fell in love with psych and I've been playing catch up ever since. <laughs> well, I think we all kind of felt like you were on the wrong path in the beginning though, right? Because you initially did like a BSc in like microbiology or something. I can't even remember. Yeah. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, like I've never used that thing like a day in its life. So <laughs> yeah, you haven't thought about it since the day you finished the last exam. So no. yeah. No, I graduated and I was like, I'm out, I'm out. Like plants and animals, like sorry guys, I, I, there's nothing that Salomon Floam has for me anymore. 
I remember that. That's like grade 10 biology. You're not impressing me with that. Well, you know, you do a lot more of it at like a, like a <laughs> undergrad level. <laughs> For sure. The, the intricacies of xylem and phloem. I'll tell you what though, my BSc really helped me with like stats and like research. That, that was oh, like heavy. Yeah. So like when I got, when I got to UNISA um, and started doing my, my psych stuff, they were like, here's this like really, really difficult research module. And I was like, what? Like cascade analysis. <laughs> so how much do the cognition peeps know about early, early Dylan? I think like almost nothing. Like at some point I need somebody <laughs> to interview me um, yeah, like, so they exactly. can understand. <laughs> I'll go on somebody else's podcast. Your emo days, your metal band days. Yeah. I'm cutting this out the podcast. <laughs> Do not cut this out. Do not cut this out. That's part of your your journey through life. I love it. Everyone's gonna go find my like personal Instagram and go like find my, my awkward pictures now. <laughs> no, they were cool, man. You were cool in school, I remember. Oh, thanks, man. Adolescence is the time to find yourself. You gotta go through the different phases. But but I think what I'm getting at though is I think that's why it was such a disconnect for us when you did like sciencey stuff. Because mm. you were always this like very entrepreneurial guy, which is obviously carried through into this um you're always kind of like a hustler and always quite like a free thinker you always had these like different things going on and stuff and yeah science was just like it just didn't fit with our picture at all so i remember i was telling you that we were like what are you doing this i think it was more a case of not really knowing what you wanted to do right exactly at the time and it was sort of like this seems like a good thing to do or a solid choice or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, heavily influenced by my father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's the problem though, right? I mean, I think that's true for a lot of people and you're expected to like pick the thing you're going to do for the next 50 years of your life. And you're totally ill-equipped to make that decision at the time. hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, how much of my interest in psychology was based on like, TV shows where it looked <laughs> cool to like go to a crime scene and be like, yeah, this guy has a lisp um, and he walks with a limp, you know, and all this stuff that is totally unrealistic. I'm going to cue the music there from like CSI, like, wow! <laughs> yeah. Exactly, dude. Exactly. But that's kind of like how it was. But I don't know. I was always, I was also like fascinated with the idea of like why people behave the way they do, like how people think. Um, the sort of psychological theory stuff really interested me. So, yeah. And I think that in my own kind of naivety as well, I just sort of followed through with it in the sense that I didn't really consider is this a difficult career path or what are the challenges and stuff? I was just like, this sounds cool. And I just kind of did it without much consideration for anything. I think that happens with a lot of students, you know, like it's kind of like an elective that sounds a lot of fun to take in like undergrad. And obviously it's once you start doing it, it's like the science of the mind and like the behaviors and all these different things. And you think, yeah. oh, well, like this is awesome. I want to do this. Let's make a career out of it. And they're like, bam, it's like longer than a medical degree. So I do think psychology is a sweet second major. Like even if it's not your primary, I think it's a cool thing to study. I think it's interesting. Um, it's not that difficult, I think, at an undergrad level. I mean, as far as subjects go, it's just sort mm. of like learning a bunch of stuff and whatever, you know. So yeah, I think it's a cool second major. And it also gives you that option one day of going into that master's thing if that interests you. But I've always had this thing where I feel like every university, every first class should be welcome to psychology one, welcome to stats one, whatever. 
And the whole lecture should be about, this is what you're going to study. This is what you can do with this degree if you follow this through. This is where you can reasonably expect to work. Like someone should tell you, this is what you can do with a psych honors. This is what you can do with a psych undergraduate. This is what you can do with a master's. This is how hard it is to get into master's. This is where this big bottleneck happens. Yeah. You know? A comparison I make a lot is that I always say with like medicine, it's like super hard to get into up front. Yeah, yeah. So you don't get in and then you choose a different path or you take a more roundabout path to get there. Psychology kind of sucks in the sense that it it asks you for four years of your life and then puts the bottleneck in place. And there's no like plan B, right? Or there are some options you can take, obviously, but if your goal was I would like to be a psychologist, you kind of there isn't a plan B. It's like you've got to get into masters and there's this crazy bottleneck there. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like what you're saying about that, that first, that first lesson, you know, like, Hey, welcome to psych. This is what it is. And if the universities are listening right now, I'll do that for you because I've built a platform entirely on doing that. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think it's a great thing because when I did it, I knew that it was hard to get into masters. That's all I knew. Mm. But I was kind of just like, oh, well, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. I mean, I was young, whatever. And like I say, I had this almost naivety to it when I was just like, I don't know, this is what I want to do. Call it a sheltered life, call it whatever. But I was just (laughs) like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. It's going to be hard and almost like romanticized it being hard. I was like, yeah, it'll be hard to get in. Wasn't that romantic when I was engaged at the time I was applying for master's. Um, getting married the next year. And I was like, if I don't get in, I was lucky enough to get in in my first year of applying, right? Which isn't Mm. a lot of people's experience. But I was like, if I don't get in, I don't have a a plan B. I don't know what I'm doing. Like I'm getting married next year. I'm like, I can't remember how old I was at the time, maybe like 24, 25, or maybe a little bit younger, Uh, maybe 24 actually. And, you know, I was kind of like looking to start my life. And I was just like, oh, crap like this is the reality yeah this is the reality now there's this huge bottleneck i applied to 10 universities i got interviews at four and unisa was the very last one i'd already known i was rejected from the other three when i went to unisa for that final interview i remember and i was so dejected and i was like well i'm probably not going to get in anyway but i have to go so whatever kind of thing you know yeah yeah but the stress of that the anxiety of that was so massive because i felt like you know, I want to move on with my life and I don't know what happens now if I don't get in. I remember that time, dude, you were living in, in PE. You just moved back from South Korea. And I think I was, yeah. it was around about that point where, where I just started studying psych or I think I was maybe like a year in or something. And I remember you applying for that. And I was still like, why don't you just go to NMU? Like it's right here. And you were like, no, dude, it's not that easy. And I, I didn't quite understand at the time. Like I'd never, I'd never put much cognitive effort into, into thinking much about how the whole thing works or that you even needed a master's like i was like cool you just want to like you know get a master's degree like that's you just want to study more like i didn't realize that it was like a requirement to get hpcsa registration yeah no it was hectic man and and i think that's when the reality really set in like even in that year you're applying and stuff you're like yeah it's going to be cool once those rejections start rolling in and you're like i'm down to my last one there's a hundred people going on day one to the unisa interviews right hundred people who made it through the initial paper round if you can call Mm. it that and they select 10 maybe right i was like oh my word like this this is a really huge and much more likely possibility that this doesn't happen for me this year what the hell am i gonna do beyond that i actually really wanted to go to nmmu that was kind of our plan we were living in pe um on my parents property they had like kind of a separate cottage where my grand used to live but she'd passed away so we were like okay this will be perfect like we'll live in this cottage i'll go to university at nmmu 
we're really close to door. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> can, well, there were people in PE at the time, like friends and stuff. I was like, that's cool. I hang out with my friends here from school. A couple of them are still around. Like my wife was trying to find a job in advertising and stuff. And we just kind of felt like this will be easy. This will work. But I got into UNISA, so we moved up to Joburg because that's kind of what you have to do yeah. in a way. You just you go where you get accepted. You don't get to choose the other way around generally. <laughs> I kind of struggled with that the first year that I was applying because I was like, well, I'm only going to apply. I was, I was living in, in Johannesburg at the time as well. And I was like, well, I'm only going to apply in Gauteng because like, I don't want to move. I don't want to like uproot my whole family. Um, and yes, like my life situation has changed a bit now, but like I will go anywhere. Like yeah. wherever anybody's like, like having gone through this twice now already and been rejected by like numerous universities. Like if anybody wants me, like I'm committing like universities, please listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's absolutely true, right? And it obviously depends on everyone's different life circumstances. We can't downplay that. A lot of people, maybe it's not feasible for them to go outside of Gauteng or Western mm. Cape or wherever. And that's cool, right? I always say if it's possible for you, cast the net as wide as possible. 100%. I was going to go anywhere I got in, right? So my wife is applying this year. We live together here. We don't have kids, but we live together in Joburg. We have a house here. My whole life is here. And I told her, apply to Cape Town, apply to Poch, apply to Durban, just apply everywhere. If you get in, We'll figure it out. We'll do like long distance for a year or two or whatever we kind of need to because it's so hard to get in. But getting once you're in, it drastically changes the whole course of your life in the sense that now you have this whole career. So, you know, what I said to my wife was like, look, if we have to do long distance or something for a year or two, yeah, it's going to suck. But then we're looking at the next 40 years of you working in this career and doing your dream and doing what you love and what you really yeah. want to do. So it's a worthwhile sacrifice and we'll just have to kind of make it work, you know? So yeah, she might go live in Poch or, or Durban or, or who knows where, you know, we're in Joburg now. So yeah, but it's just kind of what I said to her. She said, I don't know if I can, do like two years without you and it's just like well apply and if you get in we can figure it out then but i think that's what we're gonna have to do yeah it's it's like it's tough choices but i mean at the same time it's, it's also character building stuff yeah so i think that there's this running joke among psychologists like what do you say if someone asks you um about studying psychology and the answer is don't right that's kind of a <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a running joke that we always make or whatever, because it's just, it, it, it is so demanding though, in the sense that, and now that I'm here, I do love it. I really, really enjoy the job. I really enjoy what I do. I think it's a very interesting thing to do every day because you're always talking to different people and every day is a little bit different than the last one or oftentimes a lot different than the last one. And I think that's rewarding, but it, it just demands so much of you. And I think, what we don't talk about is all the people who get left by the wayside. There's a lot of people who don't get in, who never get in. I remember, this is kind of a, a brutal story in a way, but I remember when I was at UNISA, they cut us down from 100. We were there on the last day. I think there were like 20 of us or, or maybe quite a few on the last day. They, they cut us down from like maybe 30 or 40 to like 20 and we had to do another thing. So they kept on making us do stuff like group discussions and whatever and cutting it down. Um, and eventually they cut us down to 15 Yeah. and they said, guys, we're really, really sorry. We can only take 12, but we just couldn't decide. You have to go and do another thing and we're going to cut a final three people. Oh, 
So that was brutal, right? So we went into this room and they gave us another group topic to discuss. Uh, most of what we did in UNISA was group stuff. Um, we didn't really have any, I don't think I had a single one-on-one -on -one interview actually in my whole UNISA selections and uh, no role play at the time either. I don't know if that's changed, um, but it was all very group-based because UNISA is trying to craft a specific group dynamic. That's part of it for them. So Anyway, um, we did this thing and they, I remember the guy came in and he said, okay, guys, the three people who aren't going to make it are, and he looked around the circle, right? And he was like, you, and then he kept turning around. He just like, please don't look at me. Please don't look at me. Oh please. my goodness. Cause that's like, everything is on the line right now, right? If this guy doesn't point my to heart. me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're just standing there. Like if this guy doesn't point at me, like my whole life is going to change. This is going to be amazing, whatever. So he went, you you and i remember the last person he was looking he had his back to me and so i knew it wasn't me oh. but i was like because he kind of had looked at me and, and turned his back so i was like and he's picking the last person so i'm like oh it's not me it's not gonna be me but the last person that they cut one of those last three people it was her fifth year applying to unisa not to Inisa, sorry, to masters in general, her fifth year. I just imagine the brutality of that. Like it's your fifth year applying. Um, you've made it this far and then to get cut at the last second like that. Yeah. The last person to be cut on the last day uh, at the last set of interviews for that year. Like, Oh my goodness, that's heartbreaking. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know if she applied again. I think I remember saying at the time that this was going to be the last year that she tried. Um, yeah, but I don't know. So it's just, it's that whole process is very emotionally taxing mm. and it's tough. It's tough in general. I think the whole process is tough. You know, um, CompServe was a tough year for me. Um, I didn't enjoy working in a general hospital. Felt like we were very unappreciated at times and, <laughs> not a lot of room for inputs because it's mostly just a psychotic ward where they're basically trying to contain people and then move them to a long-term facility. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it, there's a lot of bumps along the way, but I, I do think that it's worth it when you get there. It's just that I feel like it asks so much of you that it's hard. It's hard because it's, it's almost hard to justify in a way how much it, it actually demands of you. And I think a lot of people get into it because they don't necessarily know what they're in for. And I think that's where that running joke comes from of don't, right? It's not that we would go back and change something because I suppose we were there now and, and now we're happy that we're there. But it's sort of like, if you're thinking about doing it, it's sort of like, oh, maybe have a plan B or yeah. <laughs> maybe consider how hard this is going to be or if you're going to be in a position where you can take this repeated rejection or whatever, because it's just, it's tough. And the universities know it. They're not unsympathetic to it. They know it's just the way the course is structured. You can't have a hundred people in the class, you know, like in my years, we were going to communities and doing stuff there, supervised stuff. We were seeing patients one-on-one -on -one behind like one-way mirrors, um, uh, intensive group stuff and, and things like that. It just wouldn't work with the huge class. It's just not the resources for it. So sure. it's just the unique way psychology is structured. Chris, so, so cast your mind back to your applications as that's what we're, we're chatting about today. Like, right. what, do you remember anything in particular from your applications that stood out that you did in a certain way that, you know, you think might've helped you that year? Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. So the funny thing about my process or the unique thing about my process was that sort of naivety that I, I hinted at earlier in the sense that I wasn't really playing the game very well. 
And I do think that to some extent there's a game to be played. So I've told this story a million times. Um, so if anyone's ever watched me in any of your things, they'll probably remember it. But um, it always stood out to me that I went to an interview at Vits. I got into an interview there and they asked me what my favorite paradigm was. And I said, oh, I really quite like systems. You know? <laughs> and they kept a poker face, but they must have been thinking like, what is this guy doing? You know, so Vits is, I mean, pretty strictly psychodynamic, right? I mean, I think they integrate other things and I can't comment too much on their course because obviously I haven't done it. But uh, I think that for the most part, there was only one answer to that question and it was psychodynamic. <laughs> yeah. But I was just being totally naive and just honest. I didn't know that. I, I hadn't grown up in the Gauteng psychology environment or whatever. I disappeared for two years. I'd been in such a little bubble. I was at Rhodes. We studied psych. I was at UNISA. I did my honors there. Um, UNISA has a systemic kind of focus to it. So obviously a lot of that had filtered through into the honors and I kind of enjoyed it. And so it was just the answer that came to my mind. And I remember not making it. This was my first interview and I didn't make it past day one. And I felt like my interview had gone really well and I was really bummed and it really shook my confidence quite badly because um, I thought, yo, I thought I presented myself so well now and now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I only much later found out that that was hundred percent the wrong answer. And people literally laughed at me about it. They're like, what are you doing? <laughs> so when I was filling out my applications, I didn't, I didn't necessarily know that stuff. I didn't know that there was sort of like right and wrong answers to things. And to some extent, it may have been to my benefit. Um, I think that in, when it comes to applications, you want to be as sort of honest and what I'd say congruent as possible. So as much yourself as possible. Um, I think it's important to remember that you on this is not the same as like a job interview where you're only trying to present your best self. What you're trying to present is sort of like a knowledge of yourself that you know who you are. They don't want perfect people. Perfect people who have never had any problems in their life or never had any adversity or anything to deal with or have never left their home, you know, are people who may not really understand the complexities of different human experiences. So, yeah, uh, don't feel afraid to talk about stuff that's been really hard in your life or things like that. And I say this, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek in a sense because. I had, until I went to Korea, I'd say I'd had a pretty easy life as things go. Um, I grew up in a nice house with parents who loved me and who still love each other. <laughs> and, you know, I had good friends. I think I had a bit of a rough time at school with getting bullied and stuff like that. But for the most part, I mean, and I kind of downplay that because I think maybe it was significant. But for the most part, I always felt like my life was pretty easy in a way. Um, and I think I even acknowledged that in my applications. I think I even acknowledged, like, I was able to reflect on that, you know, that things had been easy. Um, Korea was good because there I faced a lot of adversity in terms of, like, working in difficult environments and dealing with obstacles and stuff that I hadn't had to deal with before, um, which I think helped me a lot when I started working in South Africa and hospitals and things like that, dealing with the, the politics of it and things like that and, and knowing when to like pick your battles and stuff like that. So I think it definitely did help a lot. Um, also helped in sort of understanding different perspectives and not being so frustrated by a sort of paradigm that was different to my own because that's very much the case in Asia. <laughs> I um, I like what you say about about like the naivety going into fits because I have the complete opposite story because now like going into my applications, I, you know, knew that Fitz had a psychodynamic perspective and, you know, I went into my interviews and I almost like, because I knew that I almost 
try to portray somebody that was like overly psychodynamic and that didn't sit authentically within myself. Like I was definitely like incongruent. I basically walked out of there the first day feeling embarrassed because I don't know who that person was that sat in front of those like panelists and, and spoke there. Yeah. Half of those answers that came out of my mouth were not things that I had prepared going into it. So I think not knowing is almost better because you can be more genuinely yourself. I think I went inside there just completely the wrong person and like i really felt i felt silly afterwards which is a great point though because that's what i wanted to say as well there is a danger in almost knowing too much so the problem isn't knowing it the problem is how you use it right keep it in the back of your mind if Vitz asks you what your favorite paradigm is just say psychodynamic even if it's not true <laughs> just <laughs> and i say that kind of tongue-in-cheek but that is that is part of it, right? That is part of it. Maybe you can learn to love it. Maybe they'll figure out that it's not exactly the right thing for you. You know, someone once told me that you'll end up at the university that suits you best, Yeah. Um, which I think in psych is very much true. Mm. Um, I think Kinesa was a great fit for me and I think I would have done, I did much better there than I would have done at Vids, for example. So I think they were right to cut me and I think Kinesa did well to accept me. Um, so I think that's, yeah, well, I guess that's a biased answer, <laughs> but I, I think that's I think that's kind of how it goes. So be be yourself, but you have to play the game a little bit. Sure, you have to keep some things in mind, but it is very very important to be yourself. So don't go in there and try and pander to things. I think it's easy to go wrong there because they'll sense that insincerity or they'll pick up on that incongruency, and they'll either nail you for it or they'll just quietly cross your name off the list. Yeah, for sure. So I think, in, and that, that goes through to your application process as well. Be yourself. Don't try and write a bunch of stuff. You know, if you're applying to UNISA, don't spend three quarters of your autobiography talking about how much systems theory has changed your life or something. They're going to, they're going to see through it. Right. So I think it's just important to be yourself within, within reason, I suppose. Right. If you feel like something is really drastically going to count against you, it's your choice whether or not you want to include that. The, the universities do get such a short amount of time to to get to know you. Like, yes, they're going to learn from your application a little bit about, about who you are and like hopefully people are being authentic in what they're putting into that. But also in the interviews, I mean, at, at the universities I've been to, I've maybe spent a maximum of 20 minutes, I think, throughout an entire day with two interviews, actually, at Fitz, um, with panelists. And think back to to sometime you've met somebody and chatted them for 20 minutes. How much do you actually know about them, you know? So I think in order to be able to, to present yourself in the best way, like you have to know yourself. Like, And that's why I think the application period is such an important time because it's going to give you time to sit and think about these things that you maybe haven't considered before, you know? It's going to give you time to, to like go and do a little bit of the hard work that you need to do to mentally prepare yourself for these things so when they do ask you a question where you know you end up being vulnerable you're okay with being vulnerable yeah do not be afraid to be vulnerable do not be afraid to show your weak spots or show the parts of yourself that you don't like because it's much more important to the people reading these applications that you have knowledge of that these are psychologists. They know that everyone has issues. They know that everyone has baggage, including themselves, right? What you need to do is to be able to be aware of it because that's how you can be effective as a therapist. If you have baggage or issues that you're not aware of, it's going to impact your therapy process with clients. If you can be aware of it, you can set it aside or you can acknowledge how it might shape how you think or feel about this person and you can, or you can even use it to some extent. So, 
yeah, absolutely. It's about knowing yourself, knowing your weak spots. If you try and present a perfect person, it's not going to go well. They're going to pick that apart. Yeah. And actually, to some extent, I think that, so I spoke about my mindset when I went to UNISA. I actually didn't want to go. I was so angry and frustrated and disillusioned by the whole process. And I was in Pretoria at the time staying with my in-laws um, or my future in-laws. Um, and my wife was back in PE. And I said, you know, I know that I can't do this because it would be so stupid to do this, but I just want to get on a plane today and come home. I don't want to go to these interviews tomorrow. I feel so pointless and hopeless or whatever. And I think to some extent I carried that energy into it where I was just absolutely myself. Um, you know, I was still trying. Um, I think one of the hard parts about these group settings and stuff like that is that you need to find this balance of making sure that you actually get some airtime, like making sure that you actually, um, say something or are part of the process. Cause like you say, you've got like 10 minutes to have a group discussion. You don't want to be the guy who said nothing because there's nothing to judge you on, but you also don't want to talk over people or trample over people who'd be too opinionated or too outspoken. So there's a little bit of that balance there for sure. And I was mindful of stuff like that, but I was very much just my authentic self. I made jokes, which is very me. I make jokes when I'm uncomfortable. Um, uh, you know, I injected a bit of humor. I was much more relaxed and casual. I still cringe when I think about this, but I remember we had to write an abstract and we were sitting in a huge group and they asked like how we felt about the exercise. And I was like, well, a trained monkey can write an abstract, <laughs> you know, which is probably a pretty terrible thing to say. Um, but I guess it didn't count against me too much, but I kind of was like, well, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I just mean that it's sort of like a formula. You just write it according to a formula, you know, it, it wasn't cognitively challenging or it wasn't introspective or something like that. I can't remember what I said, but uh, I just remember saying that and, and then kind of cringing about it <laughs> afterwards. Like maybe that sounded a bit aggressive or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I think that that, congruency that I came in with was part of the reason I got in there because in some ways I wasn't anxious because I already decided I wasn't getting in, which I wouldn't necessarily say that defeatist attitude is the right one to take, but I think it just highlights the importance of just being yourself and presenting yourself. Sure. The idea here is that you will be selected on the basis that you are ready to do this and that you're a good candidate. Um, and you have to believe that about yourself. So then in that belief or that vein or that essence, if you go in and you present yourself and they get to see who you are, you will be selected. So don't try and present anything other than that. Because if you present a perfect self, you're not presenting a perfect person. You're presenting a person pretending to be a perfect person. That's what they're going to see. Yeah. And then no, and that carries through your applications as well. Uh, interviews and applications are very similar in the sense that, yeah, the nice thing about applications, you have time to consider your answers. You have time to write down what you feel like represents you best. Yeah, because I mean, we have we have this time now to to really sit with it. And like, I'm sure a lot of people are out there at the moment busy writing these things and we'll, we'll probably be listening to this for like some inspiration and stuff. It is quite scary in the fact that the application is the only part that you can control within this whole process. Yeah, that is true in the sense that I think it's hard because it just feels like you are trying to represent yourself on paper. Um, I know like for myself, I felt like I'd do better in person almost. So almost didn't like that part. 
Um, I think I can write well. I wasn't concerned about that, but it was sort of, yeah, it's just like, but you guys, you're not going to get to see me or are they going to get to see who I am? Are they going to get the essence of me from a piece of paper? Um, and I think that's what you're trying to go for. You're trying to, for these people to get the essence of who you are, what you believe, how you think about things. Yeah. And like a lot of us, um, you know, a lot of psych students out there, they're pretty well-versed at academic writing, but writing a like autobiography is not always like a strong suit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it feels weird to a lot of people as well. Mm -hmm. um, what do you include? What does it say about you if you include this? Um, you can definitely be at risk of overthinking this stuff. 100%. And I think that's often a problem. You don't want it to be almost too refined or too perfect. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, some of the I've been I've been trying to research some some tips on how to write autobiographies, and and one of them was know your audience, and I think that's really important. Like, you are writing to a group of psychologists, so make sure that you think about that while you're writing it. I don't think they necessarily want to hear about you know while I was born in Port Elizabeth on like a dark stormy night. Like, I think they want to focus specifically on psychological events within your life or or things that have shaped you into who you are now or who you're busy becoming. Absolutely. I think the most important part of the autobiography is your opportunity for reflection. So you can talk about being born on a dark and stormy night if that meant something to you, if that holds some kind of psychological meaning for you, or if it's something that you think about, or you know, maybe you feel like it was a bad omen, right? Whether or not they believe in omens doesn't necessarily matter. You're communicating that you do. It holds some significance for you, or it's how you part of how you think about the world. So don't try and think about what they believe in or what they might subscribe to. Represent yourself and who you are. Because remember, a huge part of psychology is being able to connect with other people's experiences or other people's viewpoints or ways of seeing the world. It's not going to be like, oh, this person mentioned that they're into star signs and I think star signs are nonsense. So therefore, they're at the bottom of the pile. No, it's not how it works, right? It's not necessarily that judgmental. Um, but I think the most important part of your biography or where you can really go wrong with an autobiography is making it too content focused, where you simply talk about the events of your life as they happened. I went to school. This is what I experienced. If you experienced bullying at school, that's great to put that in because maybe it's significant for you, but then explain the impact that it had on you, explain how it affected you or maybe changed you as a person. Maybe it made you a shy person. Maybe it made you a rebellious and defiant person. Maybe it's sort of damaged your self-esteem and you still feel quite self-conscious in social settings, right? Anything like that shows that you not only are aware of your experiences, negative and positive, but you are aware of how they've shaped you as a person or how they've sort of fed into you as a person or your the way you think about things or the way where you do things. That's what they're looking for in autobiography. And I think most of the the uh, admission forms will even say that they'll say something about reflecting yeah, on your experiences do. or yeah you've you've obviously been through a lot of these so you hey you know <laughs> <laughs> no well i guess you're in the process right now right and i know you're applying to like literally everywhere so yeah you would, have, you would have seen this question asked a lot of times now yeah and and that's really the important part of it right obviously your experiences are important but remember they're not just looking at your experiences they're actually considering what made you choose that 
as an experience. You have one page to write this. Why did you choose to talk about that? Of all the things that happen in your life, you spoke about your eighth birthday. Why? You know, so that's the kind of stuff you need to reflect on. This is why I feel like this has affected me. That's very interesting. Like I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. I think, you know, it, these universities often limit us to what we can put um, in terms of like like words or pages. And I'm always like, wow, I could write like five pages on this. I could write a book on this, you know, um, and maybe not necessarily, but it's it's true. Like I think they do that to limit you so that you do put down, you know, one or two experiences maybe and to see how, how, how well you reflect with those. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you have limited space, you are essentially even subconsciously prioritizing something. Mm. So what you've chosen to include is naturally going to be things that you feel like are significant in your life. So reflect on that. Otherwise they're not getting anything. I changed mine up this year. Actually, previously I'd written about, you know, uh, high school, I was in a motorcycle accident at the end of a trick. Um, I spoke about all those things. And this year I kind of, I, I broke it down to maybe the last two years of my life, you know, not getting into masters was one of the biggest things that that's ever happened to me, you know? Um, right. so, so I try to, I try to really summarize that and, and another like personal thing in my life, um, in, into, into those two pages, sometimes less than two pages and just try to make it coherent and, and try to get as much out as much of myself out as what I could. And hopefully, hopefully they'll, they'll see that. And hopefully they like the fact that I, I have changed it up for the universities that'll be seeing it again. Absolutely. I think if you can avoid one thing in your admission forms, you don't want anyone to look at it and go, Oh, this person's being defensive or this person is defended, right? That's kind of like a more, I guess, a more psychodynamic term, but it's one of those ones that sort of has filtered through into everything because we can all recognize that as an important concept. You don't want to look like someone who is unwilling to acknowledge your own difficult experiences or unwilling to acknowledge your own flaws or baggage or things that haven't been great for you. That is, I would say, the number one thing that people would look at and go, Nope. Move on. I think if anyone looks at your application and feels like you are defended, I think that is the worst thing they could see. Sure. You know, I'm thinking now at like a lot of people have been through a lot of stuff in their life and they may not be able to like reflect properly on that. And there might be other people that have had very minor things happen to them that might be a drop in the ocean for, for somebody else, but the ability to reflect on it and, 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 you know, look at how that shaped them into who they are now, I think might be, might be so different. And it's, it's something quite crazy to think of that how, how different our experiences are. Yeah, exactly. Any tips like besides not being defended that you might give to a student that uh, is writing the autobiography at the moment? Sure. I would say um, don't necessarily, uh, I think a good thing to do is to not overthink it the first time you write it. Um, so I would say sit down and just kind of hammer it out and then leave it for like a day or something and then come back and look at it again and then read it and sort of see what jumps out to you. Then you can kind of read it with a critical eye. I think if you overthink it to begin with, you risk sort of losing your natural sense of self. So just at first, I'd say write it almost as like a stream of consciousness, right? Because then you're kind of going to get what comes out, um, what you feel like you'd like to include. And then you can look at the critical line and be like, oh, I think I was a little bit self-praising here. Or like, oh, I think I kind of implied here that I haven't worked through this. Let me kind of fix this up a little bit or whatever the case may be. You can look through it with a critical eye later, absolutely. But you want to try and maintain the essence of self. You want to try and maintain who you are. 
don't write it like it's an academic article. It's something personal. It doesn't need, it's not going to have references, right? And it doesn't need to be academic in a sense. Make it something that is you, essentially. Sure. I would always advise people to just sit and write the thing. Just whatever comes out, don't worry about how it sounds or whatever, then leave it, let it sort of simmer for a while and then come back to it and sort of see how you feel about it and and what you'd like to edit and what you'd like to include or add. It's the kind of process that can sort of happen over a while, but I wouldn't want people to sort of take a long time writing it or writing multiple drafts or edit in the sense that it needs to be perfect, but more in the sense of does it represent who you are? Sure. I think if you spend too much time on it, you're going to nitpick every single sentence and eventually it just becomes a very, very tedious task. Yeah. You have to be able to sit with the discomfort of some of it not looking great for you. Sure. <laughs> that's the thing that's I think hardest to do because it's so hardwired into us that we have to like present our best self. So you absolutely have to sit with that discomfort of, yeah, I don't really look great here, but that's fine, you know, um, and use your own judgments to where it is within reason. Right? Sure. So obviously you don't want to make yourself sound terrible or like you need a ton of therapy or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's just honest, right? Cause someone could potentially look at that and go like, oh, I don't know if you're ready for this right now. You know, they won't think badly of you, but they might think maybe you're not right, ready for this yet. Um, so you've got to kind of find that line for sure. But yeah, sit with the discomfort of not presenting the best parts of yourself at time. And yeah, like I say, make sure that you actually are integrating the reflection into it. If you write about an event in your life, basically make sure you have a reason in the text that you were writing about it. Yeah, because I believe that if you put something down there um, and you don't adequately address it in your autobiography, they're going to ask you in your interviews, like, why, why did you like speak about this? You know, what, what is the relevance of this? Absolutely. Yeah. And don't be afraid to talk about you as well. It doesn't all have to be like, I don't know, this is just my opinion, I suppose, but it doesn't all have to be sort of like drastic things that happen in your life. You can also say what you like to do or what your hobbies are or what your passions are or what sort of led you down this path or what have been some good stuff that's happened in your life, right? It doesn't all have to be like, here's all my baggage, you know, and this is how I've grown from it. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to have this like, like theme running through it. And I know a lot of students try and do this. They try and think of like, oh, like I need this rag to, rags to riches story, like running throughout my entire autobiography. And I, I don't think that's necessary. I think, you know, if, if that is your story and you want to tell it that way, excellent. But like, if, if it's not your story, like just make sure it's you that comes across. Yeah. Cause I think even when you say that, right, like as soon as you start introducing artificial structures, you're introducing incongruency. You're introducing something that isn't actually about you. It's about presentation or some external factor that has nothing to do with who you are as a person. That should be your focus. It doesn't have to have poetic writing. It doesn't have to have this like incredible flowery prose to it. Um, it doesn't have to have a theme. It doesn't have to have uh, you know, a happy ending or a sad ending. Iambic pentameter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You don't need all of that stuff because when you constrain yourself in that way, you are introducing something that has nothing to do with who you are as a person. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's a lot of students out there that are, are struggling a little bit with their applications at the moment. They're like, they're getting 
I think they're getting too worked up about them. You know, a lot of the universities have pushed their their deadlines now, but like, I think they're still getting into their heads about it. Like, is there any sort of tips you'd give to people that are busy trying to write applications now? Like, you know, whether it's, it's something like, you know, set a time to do your things or, you know, choose one university and get that done. Like, what, what would you say would be like a top priority there? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think everyone's style is different. Um, I'm like a massive procrastinator, so I'm sure my application <laughs> suffered accordingly. Not you. This podcast has only been delayed like 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so I think that, I think that what you say is good in terms of like, try to focus on one university and get a flow kind of to it. Um, I think it feels good to tick boxes off. If you're applying to six universities and you've achieved two, it just feels good. It's going to feel better than having done half of all of them. If you haven't ticked any boxes, it's going to kind of feel overwhelming. I would say if you have a bunch, do the longest and most complex ones first. Um, the reason being, you can actually often copy a lot of the stuff that you've written there into the other ones. So those first two will be awful. Uh, they get way easier after that because a lot of the questions are going to be the same. Why do you want to do psychology, write an autobiography, you know, stuff like that. So you can, you don't have to write a different autobiography for every university that wouldn't make sense. So it's your autobiography. It's going to be the same, right? So copy it in. If they ask you why you want to study psychology, if you've already written that for another application, copy it in. So yeah, I think the ones that have the most questions are the most daunting and they require the most sort of cognitive, emotional and psychological effort because you have to, think about all these different things. But once you've done the big ones, chances are a lot of the other applications is going to be a huge amount of overlap and there's not going to be too many new or unique questions. And then those will fly through and you'll feel a lot more kind of confident. Big time. Um, for any students that are listening, the ones that I believe are the longest and the hardest are UJ and SMU. So if you're just starting now, uh, those two are, they're long. They're going to take you some time and they're going to take uh, <laughs> a significant amount of cognitive effort to get through them. But once you have them, a lot of that stuff can feed into the other ones. So take a look at those. Okay, perfect. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. So if those are on your list, then then go for it. Even if they're not. Like, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, I, think, I think also for students that are applying it at multiple universities, like do yourself a favor and create yourself like a little Excel document uh, that, that outlines the sort of things you need to tick off as you go through your applications, because, you know, you're going to send off four five, six different applications and someone's going to say to you, Hey, what did you do for, you know, the, the roads one? And you're like, I, I don't, I don't even remember, you know, they're like, Oh, who are your referees? And you're like, did I even send those emails off? So go through and like tick those boxes as you go through. And like, once you've sent off a, a referee report to that person, say, okay, cool. I've, I've sent that one off to whoever. I will make a date, a note here to follow up with them a week before, you know, to make sure that they're going to send it to the university. So I think that's also something you can do to just kind of, you know, give it a little bit more structure so you don't feel too lost throughout the process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's good advice. And I think, again, it depends on how you work. I mean, being that organized is obviously massively to your benefit and is going to be helpful. Um, I, for example, am definitely not that organized and definitely <laughs> had papers all around me when I was doing this or whatever. Um, so everyone works differently in this sense. Some people think, okay, I've got 10 applications to do and these are kind of the dates and then they'll work through, maybe they'll do like you said, SMU and UJ first because those are the hardest ones. Um, other people are just going to work by deadline. So 
The next one due is this one. So I'll finish that for then. Next one due is this one. Those people aren't going to have as much trouble tracking documents and stuff like that because they'll just make sure they've done everything as they send it. And then it's like a self-contained package and then move on to the next one. So yeah, do kind of what works for you, but just make sure you keep your sanity by just keeping track of that stuff. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of stuff. So I'd say just on your computer and stuff, have folders where you have all your like academic transcripts and IDs and whatever clearly labeled. So you can just go boom, 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 every time you need them because you're going to need the same documents over and over. over and over. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Yeah, I, I keep a little folder with all those sort of things. And it's it's saved me, especially in what I do at the moment. You know, students are constantly asking me different questions about various programs. And then, you know, somebody says something that's fake news um, <laughs> or somebody says something that's, uh, you know, it, I question all of a sudden. And I'm like, oh, did I actually pay that deposit or did I pay that money? Did I send the proof of payment? And then like I get freaked out. So if you're one of those students, that's, it's not a bad shout. Yeah, I'd say definitely a lot of the applications have like a little checklist at the end. Definitely just do that for your own peace of mind. Um, if you can print it out and even physically tick it off or whatever, and then you know you've done all of those things. Um, it definitely does help to make sure you haven't left out a document or left out a thing. It can be hard to hold all of it in your head. Yeah. But yeah, that's practical stuff and, and everyone will have their own system. Some more organized than others. Some people <laughs> have like color-coded files with like highlighted things. And I have that. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was never that person and I really wish I was, man. Those people's lives look so much easier than mine. Uh, actually, just shared a document with with your wife that that has all the universities laid out in it so hopefully hopefully she uses it <laughs> yeah she's so organized she has like all these like separate folders on the computer and she like makes me do all the checklists with her and stuff she's one of those organized people and i think i think like the the last thing you want though is to not get an interview because you know you forgot something you know you didn't send a transcript or you know you sent an old copy of you know your certified document from three years ago so yeah, I, I find I find it helps, but I mean, each to their own, I guess. And the problem is, you'd never know. That's the thing. You would just think you didn't get it. I mean, I wonder yeah. how many of my original interviews I didn't get might have been because of some really poor documenting on my side, because that's hundred percent a possibility. I won't lie. Last year, um, applying at NWU, I forgot to sign one of the pages, and they contacted me and said, "Hey, listen, um, you know, you, you didn't sign this page." And I was like, "What? You guys actually read all of that?" <laughs> yeah. So some will and some won't, which is which is great. But yeah, just rather make sure because some of these universities are getting like five hundred applications, yeah. um, and and Sometimes at more. that point. At that point, it's honestly it might be easier for them just to toss it to the side. They can't track down everyone. So yeah, I think they're looking to eliminate people as easily as possible. I think I think these these applications as well are, are they're not easy, you know, and I think they're designed to not be easy. They want to like kind of test your your you know your your critical reasoning skills with a lot of these things. So I think in the end it does come down to just simple things. Like if you can't follow instructions in the application, like are you are you a good fit for the for the program? you know and also it's, it's a question of commitment as all right like if you labor through this and actually take the time to answer all these questions properly you you probably actually want to do this course yeah i mean think how many more applications they'd get if people just had to tick a box somewhere online saying yes i'd like to apply for psych masters yeah. tons of people would just be like oh i could maybe do that i don't know what i'm doing next year tick you know but those same people might not be willing to labor through all these applications and put in sincere effort and get all the documents and everything you need so in some sense, it's almost like a gatekeeping thing of like, do you really want this? Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. It is, it is a test because if it wasn't a test, they would literally just ask for, you know, your name, surname and, you know, your honors mark. That would be it, you know? I mean, if they only received 20 applications a year, they would just do it all over interviews. They have to do this process because they're dealing with a massive pool of people and a tiny amount of people that they can take. So it's not feasible. I mean, in the year I applied to UNISA when they accepted 12, I think they told me they had 560 applications that year. Sure. So that's a cut from 560 down to 12. So you just, you have to make huge cuts early on to get to any kind of a reasonable number there. Yeah. All right. The next hot topic for, for the whole application season is referees. Yeah. It's weird because it's kind of the, the most challenging part of the application. And I feel like it's probably one of the least important parts in the sense of what they look at. I don't know this for sure, but I do wonder how much sway or impact referee reports have. Sure. I feel like referee reports can sort of deselect you. I think if someone wrote a really bad referee report, that could potentially count heavily against you. But favorable ones, I don't know if they count that much for you. I imagine everyone gets pretty favorable referee reports, right? Sure, sure. For the most part. So I think it's something that they'll maybe look at or I think they might look at as almost like a tiebreaker or if they're a little bit unsure, they might go to. But I don't think it's the bulk of what they're deciding on is in that referee report. You know what I mean? Sure, I, I do get that. I do get that. Which is funny because it's it's definitely the hardest thing to get, <laughs> the thing you'll spend the most time with, and the part that's the most challenging. So it doesn't matter. You have to do it regardless, and it's an important yeah. thing to do. So um, I guess what I'm saying doesn't really matter, but I just find it kind of like <laughs> a, a cruel twist of fate in a way that <laughs> you go to all this effort, and they might not look at it or care that much or or whatever. So yeah, sure. I'm trying to think of of from that perspective, what could be some of the things that, that, that they'd be looking for? And like, is it, is it potentially the fact that you have built a network within a psychological environment? Um, like those sort of things, are they looking for that? Are they looking for anything that, that stands out in that regard? I think that, I think part of the process of getting referees is engaging with the community, engaging with other professionals, stuff like that. So I think the requirement to have them is kind of important and the fact that it's kind of pushes you towards doing stuff that will actually benefit you. So it's kind of a funny thing where it's, it's more about the requirement to have them holds more sway in some sense than the actual content. That's very interesting. Very interesting. In a weird way, right? Because, and I think it's who your referees are. So I think stuff that could count against you if you had three of your three roommates be your three referees, right? Sure. I think it kind of shows that like, either you don't have faith in people to write your referee reports or there's no one that you feel like really knows you or that you haven't really engaged in a meaningful way in the sort of whole psychological or mental health rather kind of community or, or things like that. Um, or even not necessarily related to psychology or mental health, even just the community at large or built meaningful relationships. It sort of speaks to a lack of life experience. It comes down to that big life experience in capital letters thing that, that we're always chasing. Um, but I think your referees can dictate how much of that you've actually had as well. I agree. I agree. I think it, sometimes I get students that ask me like, oh, but I, I don't have any referees. And I'm like, how's that possible? Like, have, have you not worked before? Like, did you not have any interaction with like your, your lecturers? Um, you know, do you not volunteer? Like these, these are all important things that I think, you know, you need to kind of be doing and that that's how you get your, uh, that's how you get your referees. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
I sort of knew about this whole referee thing and I went on kind of a mission to build relationships and things like that. So I did a lot of volunteer work. It was kind of weird. So I had a weird situation where I was going to do my honors at Rhodes, did terribly in my final exam because we had a guest lecturer that based his entire exam question on guest lectures and I wasn't great at going to lectures. So (laughs) none of it was in the textbook. So I knew nothing. So I mean, I must have got like zero for that section. I had no idea it existed, let alone they were going to examine us on it. So after getting a distinction for the June exam, I did terribly in the final one and ended up missing the the Rhodes honors mark cutoff by like a couple of percent or something. Um, Ended up doing my honors through UNISA, but I'd already organized digs in Gramstown. So stayed in Gramstown. And did my honors through NISA. I like that. So doing art, yeah, that was pretty cool. It was a fun year. So doing my honors at UNISA left me with quite a lot of free time because obviously UNISA long distance doesn't have lectures. Um, so I did a lot of volunteer work. I got heavily involved with um, the Rhodes. They had a center for social development at Rhodes where they had like this whole student network. Um, and yeah, I did a lot of volunteer work for the person who ran that. Um, really, really awesome woman named Carol who's since gone on to work at other NGOs and do lots of cool stuff. But um, yeah, and I worked very closely with her and I was involved at all these different locations and I ended up doing like, I don't call it a pet project because that sounds weird, but her own personal project where she worked at this rehab center, she invited me to go with her. And so we take these long car rides there and back and, and chat and we really developed quite a strong relationship. Um, and then eventually to the point where I was running some of the groups and stuff at the rehab that she trusted me with and things like that. So there was like a relationship that I'd really built and she was my referee for all 10 of my things. Some of the others, you could only ask people for like three or whatever, but she was happy to do all of them Wow! because that relationship was so strong. And I, and I wasn't paid for any of this. Obviously this was all volunteer work. So I racked up something like 200 hours of community volunteer work stuff in that year. Um, and there were other placements that I worked at and I've worked closely with someone there or whatever. So I'd ask them to be my referee. So that's how I got all my referees basically was doing that stuff. But that was all, yeah, that was before they were digital as well. And I had to drive to Gramstown to like collect <laughs> referee reports and stuff. It was hectic. It was all paper and you had to like sign over the, the envelope seal and all this stuff. Yeah, you didn't email them like you do now. So that's the kind of thing that you have to do, right? You have to, it sounds a little bit manipulative, but it's not really. Um, it's, it's more of like you volunteer your time and in return, you kind of get these these referee reports. It's almost like an exchange in some way. And a lot of the the big NGOs and stuff kind of know this. They, some of them even have like policies around referee reports and stuff, right? But yeah. it kind of works because there's so many psychology hopefuls that these big NGOs actually get a stream of volunteers literally just for this purpose. Yeah. Um, so it's actually has quite a, kind of a positive impact. But I need to emphasize though, when it comes to referees or if you're looking to do volunteer work, do not feel like you have to work at somewhere psychological or mental health orientated. That is not the truth at all. If you go and work at a school or you go and work at a, a homeless shelter or you know um, a, a place of safety for women or whatever the case may be, you are interacting with people with a very different life circumstance, very different experience to your own. You're out there in maybe a rural or impoverished community. You're being exposed to very different things. That's what's important, that you are connecting with and are aware of what 
a huge amount of people in South Africa are dealing with that maybe you have not dealt with. So me coming from my little easy middle-class life in PE, I'm getting exposed to hugely different things for me, right? Like communities and how these people live and um, how, what kind of challenges they face and stuff. So that's what's important. It does not have to be psychological. Everyone falls into that trap. I need to go and work at Lifeline or I need to work a a suicide hotline or something. You don't have to do something. I need to be SADAG. Yeah. And SADAG is a great one because you get, you're not doing counseling, right? You are just talking to people who are struggling um, and, and sort of referring them. And that's also a great way of connecting with people from all different walks of life because people will tell you their whole story of what's kind of going on. So, so that's a cool one, but obviously then they've got space for lots of people. So it's not a bad shout, but all I'm saying is you don't have to do something that's related to mental health. A lot of people want to like volunteer at a clinic or something and you just don't have to do any of that. I think on top of that, even like a lot of students ask me like, oh, where can they volunteer? And then like, you know, there's maybe not something in their area. And and that's a little bit unfortunate. A lot of them like kind of give up at that, you know, um, because there's nothing psychological in the area. They can't like work with children or, you know, with whatever. And I just feel like volunteering is so much more than that, actually, just by giving your time to whatever organization, even if it's the SPCA, and you, you go to the SPCA and you work with animals for a year. Like the fact is that you still showed that you are a dedicated individual that is capable of giving their time, like no matter what they have going on around them, to another organization or another person or another whatever. Um, and I think the universities appreciate that as well. They want to see that you are able to give that commitment over. You're committed and that you're passionate and whatever it is about that you can give your 100% to this. And it's, it's coming out of your, like your own time, you know, it's volunteer time. I think, yeah, I think the important thing for them is have you been exposed to people outside your normal circle? Mm-hmm. If you grew up in a nice neighborhood in Pretoria, have you ever stepped out of that bubble of like middle-class people in Pretoria? Have you experienced or spoken to or connected with people from a different culture, different race, a different socioeconomic bracket. Um, There's a whole, and especially in South Africa, this is important here. I mean, there's like massively different worlds in South Africa that people are living in. Um, And it's very easy to stay in your own bubble. For the most part, we all do right? Like that's kind of what we do. Like we just stay in that environment and that's our exposure and that's it. So yeah, I think in the South African sense, it's very important to do that as well. But yeah, as long as you, I think as long as you're working with people, essentially, as long as you're working with people, connecting with people, it doesn't even have to be an NGO. You can find a local organization in your area or school or someone that does something and approach them and say, Hey, like, do you need an extra set of hands? Like I'm willing to help out or whatever. Um, yeah, a lot of people volunteer at a school or especially like a poor school, people that are really struggling for staff or like you can spend some time with the kids or whatever. One of my volunteer placements was, um, at this sort of, it was basically an orphanage essentially um, with kids of all different ages. I just go there for a couple of hours and we'd like play cricket and stuff. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't <laughs> like we were going to sit and do like a, a therapy session or something, which would have been terrible because I wasn't qualified to do that anyway. Right. So, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't anything more 
than that. It was literally just like playing together and spending time together and engaging with them. And yeah, you chat to them and hear about their lives or sort of get a feel for how they live. But and you gave them something, right? You gave them acknowledgement, appreciation. You gave them your time. You brightened their day a little bit or entertained them. And that, and that was honestly enough. You can use your psychological skills that you develop throughout your your sort of undergrad and honors and stuff to to also try and identify like community needs in your area if there aren't any volunteering opportunities around you like i think i think a lot of people want these already established ngos to tell them okay cool we need you to come and like you know sit with these people and talk to them or play cricket with the kids over here but i think a lot of the times they aren't like NGOs and, and MPOs established. And I think a lot of the students I would, I would hope would be able to actually say like, Hey, inside my community here, like we're really struggling with whatever the thing is, you know, like how, how can I as a psych student address that? And like, who can I maybe chat to about setting something up? And, and who knows, you might end up with your own NGO, you know, that when you get into masters, sometime you, you're writing a paper on your own NGO that you've created and like how it's benefited that community. So I think there's there's a wider scope of, of volunteering in as psychology students. Yeah, man, absolutely. You can always show some kind of initiative in anything like that. You can organize talks or psychoeducation stuff. I think that stuff's kind of easy to do. Um, you know, you can approach a school and say, you know, I'm worried about education around this or that, and I'd like to chat about it, or how would you feel about me doing a presentation on this, or whatever the case may be, you know? For sure. Stuff like that is easy because you're not stepping on the toes of anything you shouldn't be doing, right? Exactly. One of the advice I'd give is don't don't try or do therapy or counseling. I think that's a, a trap that people fall into as well. They want to demonstrate disability for that kind of stuff. But the universities don't want you to be doing that because they feel like you're not qualified to, or especially if you're doing a lot of counseling, they feel like they're kind of have, going to have to unteach you how to do counseling and teach you how to do psychotherapy you know, or they feel like it's potentially unethical or something like that. So yeah, be careful of that kind of stuff. Sometimes trying to do too much or trying to impress can sort of lead you down the path of doing stuff that actually isn't looked upon favorably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember one of my volunteer posts was sort of like um, young adult boys. So like 17, 18, 19, and they asked me to have a chat with them about HIV um, so instead of doing a PowerPoint presentation or whatever, I actually just sat down with them in a group and said, cool, let's chat about it. Like, let's hear about what you guys think or, or whatever. And yo, the stuff that they were saying was at the time for me, unbelievable. Like the kind of stuff that they, their beliefs around it and the sort of stuff that they'd heard and how much misinformation there was. It was, it was really eye opening for me, but it gave me such a good insight into like, Oh, okay. Well, this is why the country has, you know, the worst HIV infection rate in the world. Like this is the kind of stuff that people are sitting with, you know, and I was able to kind of chat to them about it and not say, well, that's ridiculous or that's stupid, but sort of engage with, okay, why do you believe that? Or why do you think that? Or where did you hear that? You know, mm. um, how do you feel about this? And I could present my beliefs or, or my views on HIV or the sort of medical stuff on HIV and ask them to reflect on it and tell me if they thought I was full of crap or whatever. And they, they, they would be like, yeah, dude, I don't know. That sounds a bit skeptical. Like I've heard this, you know, which was so much more effective because if I just presented to them, they would have nodded and smiled and yeah. thought I was full of crap and carried on. For sure. So yeah, I think experiences like that are really useful because even that experience taught me 
how to engage with a population that's different to the one you come from or how to engage with people with different ideas or how to not go in as sort of like, ha, ah, I'm the knowledgeable person and I'm going to teach you stuff and you're going to listen to me and just trust me just because that people might not trust you or not, not believe what you're saying or might not really think that you're any more qualified than they are. So yeah, sure. experiences like that are so valuable. And I still remember that experience today. That's in a couple of hours of my life, you know, I don't know how many years ago at this point, <laughs> like, like 12, 12 years ago or something like that, um, that I still remember um, as part of this whole volunteer experience. So yeah, it, look, to bring it back to the point, I suppose, because I know I'm rambling a little bit, but no, it's fine. When, it comes to, when it comes to referees, basically the requirement is to build relationships. Um, so I know in our talk that, that we did, sort of seminar that you did, um, I spoke about referees being something that you plan long in advance. Um, for me, I was doing this in my honors year. So this was ended up being, because after honors I went to Korea. So this ended up being like three years before I actually called on these referees and said, hey guys, uh, I need that stuff now. Um, so yeah, referees are something that you're thinking about in advance. It's not like, oh, this is due in two weeks. I need to scrounge up some referees. Yeah. That's going to be tough. Um, it essentially requires you to build a relationship with someone who is not necessarily like your friend or family member, but someone who has worked with you or knows you in sort of a capacity of something related to community work or psychology or something like that. So if you don't have anyone like that in your life, you need to go and find someone. <laughs> you need to go and build that relationship. You need to find someone Actively, who's willing, yeah. yeah, who's willing to write 10 referee reports for you or whatever the case may be. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the things I suggested to the students that are, are looking or trying to, trying to get referees and like wondering who to ask is take the referee report that the university provides you and have a read through it. And while you're doing it, try and imagine the person that, that you can see answering those questions for you. You know, is it, is it a lecturer? Is it your mentor? Is it your psychologist? You know, and then try and try and build from there. You know, I think, I think a lot of students are waking up now, you know, saying, Oh, I actually don't have anybody. And like, I don't even know where to start. And, and like Chris said, it, it's something that you need to, you need to spend time building over, over quite quite a long time you know you need you need one of the questions it's going to ask there in the referee report is how long have you known this person and if they say oh they contacted me in april like how authentic can they be in terms of giving a positive recommendation of of your character and your ability to be a psychologist if they don't really know you yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's it's one of those things that does require some forward planning. Mm. Um, one of the referees I had was actually a psychologist and I actually went to her saying, hey, how would you feel about doing some sessions with me and writing a report essentially? So I kind of framed it up front from the beginning. Um, the one thing about asking a psychologist to be your referee report is that it can kind of blur the lines because now what if you're holding back in therapy because you're like, oh, I don't want to say this because they're going to think badly of me. <laughs> You know, and that really screws it up. So having your own like personal therapist, especially someone that you may have been seeing for a while, be your referee can be problematic in the sense that it can really impact the therapy because you actually are not going to want to show parts of yourself because you're going to have that in your mind. Oh, what if this person's judging me? And they're going to think, wow, I'm going to write this on the referee report, right? Sure. That's a very awkward situation that really ruins the therapy process. But what I did was I went to a psychologist and said, you know, I don't know if I'm here for therapy necessarily, but I'd like to chat to you about myself um, and my life and, and who I am and, 
maybe get some advice around psychology and yeah, I'd like it if you would be willing to write this report for me. Yeah. And she was, and, and that was kind of cool. We had a few sessions where she kind of chatted to me about me and, uh, you know, I actually opened up a lot to be honest. Um, yeah. It almost kind of felt at some points like kind of a therapy process, but yeah. So I think that if you, on listening to this podcast now and your deadline's two weeks away and you, or maybe a little bit more than that, but, uh, and you, you kind of realize you don't have any referees. I think that's something potentially to consider. You can kind of have someone almost kind of like try and evaluate you or get to know you or, you know, that's up to the psychologist. I think it depends yeah. on how they view that kind of relationship. But I think the important thing is to frame it in a particular way from the start. You don't want to frame it like a therapy process and then be like, by the way, can you write this thing? You know, at the end of it, I think say up front, like, would you be willing to chat to me and get to know me a little bit and then maybe write something about me in this thing? You know, Um, it wouldn't necessarily be a proper therapy process. It would be something a little bit different. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I did that. I started seeing a psychologist before I started my master's uh, applications last year because I kind of went into it like I want to learn from this person you know um, this person's a clinical psychologist she has a doctorate like I'm, I'm keen to learn you know and at the same time I wanted to build a relationship with somebody in a psychological environment you know that could potentially write a referee report for me but at the same time I didn't kind of want to touch on any sort of you know multiple relationships or anything like that but it actually turned out that I needed the therapy anyway. So it was, it's like a, it was like a double thing for me. I, I got help and I also learned a lot at the same time. And, and now she's able to write a referee report. We've since terminated and, um, you know, she, she's, she's writing a referee report for me for this year. So I believe that she's, she's hopefully able to give a good and a realistic picture of, of, of who I am and, and, hopefully the psychologist that I have the potential to become. Yeah, absolutely. And relationships can evolve organically in that way, therapeutic relationships, you know, Mm -hmm. we maybe it starts out that way, but then you kind of click with that person, you get into some personal stuff and then it does become more of a, a kind of a therapy process, I suppose. Yeah. In terms of if we were to make a hierarchy of referees, who would you put at the top of it? I would say someone that you've worked closely with in some kind of like volunteer community kind of capacity. I think that would probably be the best kind of person. So that was my person. Um, And I think that's probably the best kind of referee because I think they know you very well. Um, they've worked with you in a, in a different kind of environment and, and one where you need to sort of be able to be compassionate or patient or mindful or empathic, you know, stuff like that. So they are psychological qualities that they are kind of able to evaluate without necessarily being able to evaluate like as a psychologist. Sure. Sure. They don't need to be a psychologist themselves. I don't believe. I think, um, you know, a lot of, especially UNISA students, they get, they get tied up in this whole academic reference thing. And, and I think there are ways around that, you know, your, your transcripts, you know, they're, they're an academic reference, you know, so do, do the work and make, build the relationships that you need um, to, to do that. Even if you don't have an academic reference, I think that's not, it's not the end of the world. I don't think so either. I mean, I think that realistically, um, if you've studied long distance or something, maybe you've never really had a close relationship with any of your lecturers. And even in regular psych classes, I'd say, I mean, I remember at Rhodes, like Psych 1 was massive. There were like hundreds of people. Um, Psych 3 was still really big. Psychology was one of the biggest 
classes at Rhodes always, undergraduate psych especially. So maybe in your honors, you get an opportunity to work with someone a little bit closely. Um, even if you're doing distance, like often in honors, you have to do a research kind of thing. Um, and there, there could be a back and forth with someone. So research is an important component of masters. So I'd say that's probably also the near the top of the hierarchy. If you have anyone who can comment on your research stuff, I think that's great. Um, it's something they might potentially want to see. Sure. Um, if you don't, again, don't panic. Like I say, I don't necessarily believe that these referee reports are the most important parts. I think it can just feel that way because they require the most work. I feel like I'm going to get a letter from all the universities being like, listen. Um. It's super important. <laughs> well, that would be great. If, if universities actually we'd know. told us what was important, that'd be great because they don't. They guard that information very closely. Uh, I think the truth is to some extent they don't necessarily know. Um, remember, these panels are all individuals and I know for a fact that they often disagree. Um, mm. So I have spoken to some people who've been on the other side or whatever. So I know a little bit about how this process works. Um, and I know that sometimes you'll have a candidate that you're really pulling for and you really believe in and, and no one else kind of believes in them and you have to kind of fight for them and say what you see in that person or whatever. There's a huge amount of subjectivity to this whole thing. So yeah, I don't think, I think that's why they can't give you definite answers because there's general stuff. And I think we are able to know and cover the general stuff fairly well. And I think we have done talking today. I think the general stuff holds true, um, but there's a lot of individual stuff as well. Just someone having a good feeling about you or someone liking you or someone feeling like you are good in this or someone seeing something that maybe they don't like. And then, you know, whatever we, we don't necessarily know exactly. And I think it's, there's a lot of luck in this. Hey, yeah. There's multiple people reading your applications, for example, but each person is going to get like a stack of a hundred, right? They're not going to have, every person read every application. So person A might like your application and person C might not. And I think when you're dealing with faceless people and you've got 500, it's very easy to just toss something to the side. For so sure. I don't think take the rejection personally. Like I said, I got outright rejected from six universities. In the same year that I got in, I got rejected by six. That didn't even invite me for interviews. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, man, everyone's looking for something different. And I think there is a big luck element to this whole thing as well. Well, listen, okay, this is a bit off topic, but they had this <laughs> study that showed that, oh, man, what was it? I can't remember the exact outcome, but basically it was like around like sentencing or parole hearings or something like that. And it was for the people who went before lunch and the people who went after lunch. Yeah. And one was much more favorable than the other. I think it was, it was either like before lunch, people were in a hurry and they just sort of like gave you what you wanted or it was sort of like they were grumpy before lunch. And you didn't. <laughs> it was like a very real correlation in the study that showed, and I'm, I'm not I'm butchering because I don't exactly remember the parameters or what happened, but there was a very real difference in how people were treated if they were in the slot right before lunch or in the slot right after lunch. Interesting. <laughs> and that's in like something that's, really important that's like court of law stuff right yeah it's yeah. like people's lives like maybe even more so than the psych stuff so <laughs> yeah, I, I guess what i'm saying is that everyone's human so there's a lot of a human element to all of this so it's hard not to take it personally but yeah i guess i'd say try not to take it too personally but yeah academic references we were talking about and somehow ended up on courtroom lunches um <laughs> So the academic references are, yeah, I think if you have it, great. Yeah. I think personally, I would rather choose someone who knows you well 
and is a good referee that is an academic over an academic person who literally doesn't remember you and will maybe just look at your mark and base it off that. Sure. Yeah. I think that's that's spot on. Anything else you had to add? Sure. Um, I don't think so. I think I've talked your ears off. Uh, congratulations <laughs> to the people who, who made it to made the it end of far. this. Yeah. <laughs> You're still with us. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry for talking about lunch. <laughs> we have to like make a club and then they'll get something like, you know, something extra, something free yeah. at the end of this whole thing. Exactly. Um, no, but but yeah, thanks, Chris, for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I know that the students will too. Yeah, thanks so much. Dude. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I think it's a great platform and I think it's very helpful to people. I definitely could have used it when I was applying. So yeah. <laughs> if you'd like to find out more about Chris in a professional capacity, please visit his website, cccychology.co.za. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it interesting, please consider subscribing to it on your favorite podcast streaming app. If there are any individuals or organizations that would like to sponsor an episode, please contact us at info at cognitionandco.co.za. That's all we have time for today, but we look forward to seeing you again next time. Stay safe, South Africa.